Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah Stremming, the Cog Dog Coach, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I cover behavior concepts, discuss training ideas, interview experts, and explore my cases, all regarding the dogs we live and play with. Let's go. Agnieszka Janarek is the founder of Tromplo, an online platform for high-quality animal training. She has an academic background in applied behavior analysis, and her focus is on bridging the gap between science and practice for her students in animal training. We sat down today to talk about shaping and its evolution from the old days of 101 Things to Do with a Box to the current best practice of seeing shaping as a process of building blocks. Enjoy. Welcome to the podcast. Will you share your name and pronouns with us? Agnieszka Janarek, and it's she, her, and hers. Welcome so much. I am so excited about this. Thank you for joining me. Today, we're going to talk about shaping, but we're going to talk about it in kind of a building block type of approach. And I know for me, and I know for a lot of my listeners, I initially learned this very confusing, frustration-laden style of, of shaping, and I'm putting shaping in quotations that my teachers sometimes referred to as free shaping. And now not only that process, but that phrase feels triggering (laughs) to me and I I try not to use it. So I want you to dive in, explain what this building block approach looks like. Okay. So uh, yes, I've learned the same way. So shaping was mostly uh, for me previously was like you go into a training session, you have a clicker, whatever you use, and you wait for the dog to figure it out, right? So uh, how it really, like for me, you know the intro scene from uh, Shrek where he is in a toilet and he reads this, you know, book and he says, yeah, and she's going to wait, you know, they, they, she will have to wait because like, like that's going to ever happen. And this is exactly what I think about this approach to shaping that involves just waiting for the dog to figure it out. It's like, let's teach someone to play piano. So what you do, you teach them to put the fingers on the keyboard and then you uh, teach them to play the first note and then you wait until they play Mozart, right? (laughs) This is sort of what we expect our dogs to do. And this is super frustrating. Then I I, like, this is what we, of course, learned to do for, for a very long time. But then the next approach for me was like, you know, going using a stairways example. So you break down the behavior. Yes. And then you go like with smallest possible units. Uh, and then you progress from one unit, one, like, one behavior to another in a linear format, like a step-by-step progression. But basically what you do is you withhold the click until there is more of the behavior that you like, and you just go like follow the, these steps. And, you know, this is, this was a better approach definitely, but still it's very, sometimes very challenging and it still involved a lot of frustration behaviors because it was based on withholding the click often to just get the dog to do more. And basically, I think there was like, for me, there was something missing there. And I don't know exactly where I heard the phrase, like considering shaping more like a legal land approach, but I really like, 
this is what resonates with me. It's those building blocks, which means we are not like if you imagine a, a Legos and you put a house together, you don't do it in a linear format. You build separate elements in the first place and then you put them together. And this is how I see shaping. So we are looking for prerequisites. We are looking for things that together create that final behavior. It's not linear. It's like more like a modular uh, approach. So we are building different, we are taking different blocks and we are creating something from it by putting it together. So if you imagine, for example, set up in a heel position, how you're going to approach it from uh, building blocks is like you're going to first teach pivoting. You're going to teach uh, head position. You're going to teach backing. You're going to teach uh, taxit. And then when you have all these prerequisites, you're going to put it together. And so this is how I see approach to shaping that's based on building blocks rather than, you know, linear progression that you're going to do step-by-step following the line and waiting for the dog to offer more of something, of behavior, of pace, of, of movement. But rather, you're looking for things that create the final behavior when you put them together. Fantastic job. <laughs> I think that everybody, <laughs> I think that that's really clear. And also, when we are putting these component parts together, as opposed to, I, I feel like that is us truly building the behavior versus expecting it to just manifest. Like I feel as though older styles were just kind of, they put all of the onus on the learner to just manifest the right next steps. And that led to, I've had students say to me, I hate shaping. When I knew exactly, I knew what they were doing in front of me was shaping. They just didn't know that it was because they thought that shaping was sitting down with a clicker and waiting for the behaviors to manifest. (laughs) And we, (laughs) and putting these building blocks together, for me, one of the benefits is going to be a perceived reduced experience of frustration. Therefore, obviously that's nicer for everybody, but also there's fewer behaviors that we're going to find problematic in our final picture. I know that when I was kind of growing up in competitive obedience, I was told, you know, that clicker training, that's just going to get you a lot of extra stuff that you don't want in the ring. Right. And, and so, you know, we don't want them to be creative. We want them to know exactly what they're supposed to do all of the time. And we don't get a bunch of extra stuff we have to get rid of if we are actually focusing on those components. Are those benefits that you also see? And if you want to go off on any other benefits, like let's talk about it. So basically I think that in any kind of technique, uh, procedure that you use to teach behavior, you don't want to have unwanted behaviors. So uh, if your training involves teaching unwanted behaviors, that means there is something wrong with the whole structure of it. And uh, we can approach it differently because basically when I teach a new behavior, I don't want to get rid of like 50% of what was there. So uh, what I want to do is have, of course, errors like this will go slightly into the errorless approach it doesn't mean that we have to avoid errors at all costs obviously they are not necessary for the learning process to occur but they will because we don't have enough data to avoid them and it's not about avoiding them because then you're going to be scared of doing any training if you're afraid of making any error of your or your animal making any error but 
it's more like treating error as a feedback, but also about really understanding that we don't need the animal to make errors to learn so that the way we structure the training session, the way we use antecedent arrangement can facilitate that, you know, build that stage for the animal to perform the clear behavior, the only, the, the behavior that we actually want to see because the, the fallout of that old shaping was usually, for example, when you click every single, you want to teach your dog to go around the cone and you click every single interaction like it used to be, right? Click every single interaction with the cone and then finally the dog will go around the cone. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but before that, he's going to paw the cone. He's going to target the cone. He's going to step on the cone. He's gonna push the cone. And there are plenty of things he can do with the cone instead of like circling it, right? And when you actually start by clicking every single interaction with that object, whatever, if it's a cone or target, then it means that if you finally want to have, let's say, going around that object, you will have to get rid of the stuff that you just taught. And this is not cool. <laughs> this is really not cool. Like imagine someone is teaching you to, let's go back to playing the piano, but they're going to teach you the, playing the piano and they taught you like 10 behaviors, but they need to get rid of the seven. Like, you know, we taught you the, these 10 behaviors, but the seven that we taught you are completely not necessary. And now we have to clean it up. And, but you already have them in your repertoire. So you're going to, come back to those behaviors because this is what they taught you in a second. And it's going to be super annoying and frustrating if they're going to try to withhold the reinforcement for you uh, or, you know, use, uh, or are they going to tell you like, no, wrong, 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 right? Because this is the responsibility of the teacher to make the learning process really as precise as we can for the student. Because... If we are putting a lot of mess out there, it means we have to get rid of it. And this is so, really so not cool for both. Right. Yeah. Like that's, that's the important thing that I think is that we want to think about. This isn't mm -hmm. only centered on the learner's experience. Like this is also the teacher, you know, I, th I think that holding the learner's experience in the highest regard is, is important for us as teachers. However, yeah, it sucks as a trainer to go, oh, I trained this because I reinforced it because I thought it was part of the bigger picture because I wasn't thinking in component parts and now we have to get rid of it. I've certainly helped students get through, yeah, the dog half, half circles the cone and then nose targets it or <laughs> slows down on their way to the cone and looks back and things like that. I had, you know, in in my early days of learning kind of how to do this stuff um, with my dog who is 15 now, I remember sessions where this poor dog was, <laughs> you know, I was trying to teach her, like, put her feet on these paw pods and she was like flinging them at my face. She was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> because what a complex behavior that I'm trying to ask her to do. And I'm literally just waiting for pieces of it to manifest because I thought that's what I was supposed to do. And it turned out to be really just infuriating for both of us, I think. And when we do not think about these components and we just kind of go for it and we're just going to click, like you said, anything that we imagine might be an approximation without actually thinking about what the approximations are. Like any interaction with the cone isn't an approximation of circling the cone. <laughs> so yeah, thinking about those components is really important, but let's use, let's use cone wrapping as an example, because I think 
most people have attempted it at least, and most people can certainly picture it. So dog goes and walks out around a cone. Talk to us about that from a component place rather than a trying to capture all the approximations that manifest from the sky place. Like let's use a really specific example and have you kind of talk through that. Yeah. So, but just before that, there is also one thing I want to say about this really being not cool. So for the handler is that, for example, one of my dogs, uh, Gatsik, who passed away recently, he was such a great training partner, but uh, he had to endure many of my errors <laughs> in training and because this is how we started. And I remember that I was really frustrated that he's barking out of the blue, like really out of the blue. I mean, like he's just barking and I don't I, like he was too creative for shaping. He was just too easily frustrated and too impatient. I always said at the beginning, like, you know, it's very hard to shape with him, like, because you're shaping because he's so impatient. This was actually what I taught him. So all these unwanted behaviors, they become often part of the, they are cued by the environment uh, of the whole training session set up uh, eventually. So if you start to reinforce all those behaviors that you don't like and you want to get rid of, eventually they will be an integral part of the whole training scenario. And it's going to be difficult to teach new behaviors because your go like old cues are going to be present all the time. And uh, so, so this is something also to have in mind. But going back to going around the cone. So if we were to look at it from like older, you know, uh, approach, it would be like every time your dog moves toward the cone, click as he approaches the cone, you're just going to, you know, click and treat and uh, then he probably is going to target the cone so you start to click closer interaction to the cone and finally somehow maybe if you're lucky it's gonna kind of move to you know circling the object if you're lucky but if we look from the components you you start with like what is you can start from the end actually so where is the dog after he finishes the whole behavior. So you take that, you look from, okay, so the dog is facing me, facing the handler, or is he in the heel position? Because this is going to change a lot of things. And then you can make sure that you already have that heel position or you already have that front position before you start teaching it, a different, a, a different component. And then the dog has to move forward, be able to go away from you. And this is another part of the behavior that you need to teach. So the dog has to be able to move away from the handler. Also, turning around is another thing that should be taught completely separately. And offering the behavior from transport, for example. So being able to remove the transport and let the dog offer the behavior. So this is like totally for me a prerequisite of something that we need to teach because uh, if your dog, like for example, you're using food transport, so your dog is eating food out of your hand and then you take away that hand and if your dog is not flowing at this, he's going to look at you back at you or he will try to get to your hand again and this is going to really mess up your training session. But if your dog is, you have that prerequisite, so you finish the transport and what your dog should do is immediately offer the behavior that's in front of him. Like the, so for example, step on a, on the platform, or uh, if we already know, like go around something. But if your dog doesn't yet know going around, you can set up the environment. So if you want to teach the circling motion, you will be able to use the antecedent arrangement to set the stage so that the only correct choice is to go around it. So for example, you will use delivery 
of reinforcement for a start position. And you can deliver a treat in a location that will teach the dog to always go back. So you will deliver a treat, will require only, for example, two steps next to the cone to the end position. So we're going to use a little bit of back chaining principles in that case. Yes, I was hoping that that word, (laughs) we were going to say that word and kind of Uh, call it what it is, right? So for sure. Yeah. Uh, so we will use we can use bike chaining if we treat, for example, every step as a separate behavior. Uh, so, for example, you will have that object that you want your dog to circle, and the end behavior is, let's say, hill position. And your dog is super fluent in hill position because you already taught that separately. So you deliver a treat in front of you, and the dog goes back to a hill position after each delivery, and you do that a couple of times, and then. You deliver it next to the object that the dog is supposed to circle so that the object is on the way, kind of like it's the last moment that the dog will be passing that object. And then you can place the treat further and further away from you so that the dog has to do more of a circling motion around that object and come back. And you're going to click when the dog comes back into a heel position. So it's basically back chaining, but we are treating every single step. So one step to heel position is like two behaviors. One step and pivot to heel position. Then you add another step and you have like three behaviors. One step, second step, and pivot into heel position. And then we can actually build the whole progression just by adding, using delivery of reinforcement strategically and making sure that all those components, that prerequisites, those modules like transport, like end position, like being able to disconnect from transport are in place because that way this just becomes like super easy. And this is like when we are, for example, also teaching backing, you simply deliver a treat like your dog let's say the end behavior is uh rare pause on a platform so you're going to deliver a treat slightly forward so that the dog reaches for the treat and steps from the platform with just one paw and then because the weight shift is forward this is the dog will immediately go back to stable position and then you click it so again using back chaining principles and but we have to understand that those prerequisites, like dog knows what to do with a treat placed in front of him or delivered from hand, or, you know, you have, he, he uh, is able to get on the platform from various angles. So these are the things that we need to teach separately in order to put them back together. And this way we have really, like, this really makes things so much easier in training. Well, it does. And you're talking about, because I think I think people can overcomplicate it really quickly and think of component parts as being, well, the dog has to be able to, you know, wrap its body around and what, and all of, and all of these different mm-hmm. kind of complicated components, but breaking it all the way down to the dog needs to be able to take food and then reorient to the person. Mm-hmm. Like that is a core skill yeah. that that is kind of our first component, right? Is that if I place food here you eat it and you kind of return to like a home position sort of thing that I have taught you is relevant in our, in our training. And then we can utilize that home position, utilize that dog kind of always orienting back to, and it doesn't have to be the same place. You can teach kind of multiple home positions that are cued in, in by different, by different postures, by different um, locations, by different props, etc. And when we take the time to teach these components, 
everything is so slick. And like, if you haven't experienced how fast and how easy this can feel like, you might not know yet. Like this might be a trust me moment of no, really put in the work on, on all of these little individual pieces, because then it, you know, if you've ever seen a really beautiful training session, understand that those components were understood by that dog and by that person before this training session started. And I think that, well, I, I've definitely heard dog trainers ex- specifically express the dogs need to learn frustration tolerance and that having them learn that through training is a good idea. I disagree really strongly with this, <laughs> but it's certainly an idea that's out there. And, you know, I could go on for about two days with like about all the problems in that statement, but I want to hear your opinion on it. Like two, two questions really. Is it a good idea for them to learn that kind of thing through training? I think I understand what the answer is already. But the other one is like, well, do they need frustration tolerance at all? Is that any of our business? Talk about that a little bit if you've got some thoughts. So basically, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. The end, uh, end of podcast. The end, okay, answer is thank no. Thank you. <laughs> the answer is no. Okay. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> yeah. No, but... Uh, this is similar to when people say dogs need to make an error. Like you need to get it wrong to get it right. And, you know, I do like the sport that I do for myself, it's called tricking and it's doing like different martial art kicks with aerial tumbling and everything. So you do a lot of things that can really harm you, really harm you. Like you can break your leg, injure yourself really severely. And no one ever, no, none of my coaches has ever told me, you need to make, you need to get it wrong to get it right. You need to, you know, when you do that backflip, you really need to land on your head to understand that this is not the way to do it. Like, I don't know. They never said that to me, which I'm super grateful. And and I would just like to shout out to the fact that we teach dogs to do really complex, dangerous things as well for dog sports. Mm -hmm. And so, and a lot of the folks who are doing that do hold this idea that they need to get it wrong sometimes. And I think that you're making a really, really important point that maybe they don't actually, maybe (laughs) they don't need to do 20 failed reps of something that is fast moving and requiring tons from their body. Just me, you know, that's just my little personal soapbox that maybe we should think about that. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And I've learned that backflip, you know, without actually landing on my head. So I didn't get frustrated. I didn't made errors to learn it and the other thing is that when you but but because by frustration we often mean uh, that the dog has to make errors right because these are the repetitions that we don't reinforce uh so there is some component of extinction involved so something that used to work doesn't work anymore but when you make an error when you learn something and let's say you do 10 repetitions and seven out of 10 are incorrect. So what are the moderate patterns and what are the behaviors that you are actually getting fluent at? They are not the ones that you want to get fluent at. They are the wrong, like you're getting better at being wrong. And because like, think about the ratio. When I do the training, I don't want to do like seven incorrect repetitions because like my dog will learn incorrect things. Like he will be much more fluent at being wrong and I don't want him like this is completely the opposite of what I want yes Uh, I think to sorry to interrupt you for a second but the I think that the argument that I hear is Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. well I didn't reinforce those repetitions 
But what you're not acknowledging Mm. is how many other interesting things are involved in each repetition beyond your click and treat. Yes, doing something wrong opens the door for you to do it wrong the next time in kind of a neurobiological way, regardless of the reinforcement pattern that happened. And so, yes, I I think that the, the hope, you know, I'm thinking running dog walks and agility. The hope is that, well, I didn't reinforce those incorrect reps and therefore it's okay that they Mm. are happening all the time. It's not okay that they're happening all the time. So just to kind of chime in on that, because that's what that made me think of. Absolutely. But also it's like the fact that the behavior, if the behavior is happening again, it doesn't necessarily mean like, it doesn't really matter that you think you didn't reinforce it because if it happens again, it means the behavior was reinforced. And even if you withhold, I mean, because there's plenty of more, like you said, the trees are not the only reinforcement available. So there is a problem with that because the dog repeats the behavior that you don't like, right? So you withhold that treat, you withhold that click, and you get the extinction burst. So there is more of that behavior. There is more of unwanted stuff. And then you suddenly decide, yeah, this is what I want. So you click, you deliver a treat, but what you forget is that the whole, you know, you just stop the extinction process and you didn't wait through the extinction burst because you would have to, if you want to extinguish the behavior. And I'm not saying that using extinction with extinction burst, it's something to do, but if you wanted to do it effectively, you have to wait through the extinction burst and wait for the behavior to start to disappear. But what usually happens is that you get that extinction burst There is the behavior that you kind of like, and then you reinforce it, which means that you reinforce that beautiful chain of all the things that was happening just before, and you're going to get so many unwanted things. But it's not only that, because what you are also capturing is the whole emotional state, the whole, the everything that goes around the context, how the animal was feeling at that moment. And these are not really cool emotions sensations, affects that actually you want to have as a part of the behavior because they are becoming, what you click is not just the behavior that you see, but the whole context, the state the animal is in. And if you want that to be part of your, of the, of the behaviors repertoire, I mean, this is not exactly a pretty image. And the other thing is, if you really wait through that extinction and because you want that animal to, you know, to work harder, to get more resilient. If you wait too long, you get what, like you create what I would say are quitters because at some point it's really, there isn't like, you can try, right? Once, twice, three times, like you're going to try a couple of times, do something that used to work, but eventually you're going to just quit because there is no point and it can generalize. So then people come and say, you know, my dog doesn't really want to work with me, but we, that's not because he doesn't work and work with you. This is what we actually taught the dog to do, that there is no point in trying because every time he tries, there is extinction. And then the whole context of the training session becomes, it's a poison cue, actually. The whole training context becomes a poison cue. And I think that, I think it happens often and easily, like, Mm. and sometimes for the dog's Sometimes there are dogs that aren't quitting, 
but they are kind of spiraling and they are yelling at you and they are do like, it just kind of depends on who they are as a person, how they're going to respond to the scenario becoming poisoned. I work with plenty of dogs for whom kind of the sport scenario is poisoned. They see the entire sport, whatever the sport is, they see the setup, they see the whatever, and they either start checking out or they just immediately are pissed and they are screaming at this person and they just, nothing even has to happen for us to go there. We could say that kind of in the older way of doing things, the waiting for behaviors to manifest, that what we're doing is relying on an extinction burst to produce more behaviors for us to then select from. And I think that people feel as though that seems faster than relying than teaching all of these component parts and then utilizing the building blocks. I disagree that it's, I mean, of course, there could be a scenario in which you got somewhere really quickly because the right behavior showed up within that extinction burst really right away. But I think in general, the, the argument of, well, that takes too long is, is a false argument. So talk about... Talk about that a little bit. Do you think there's any truth in any of that? Uh, no, it's, I mean, it's definitely not faster to use extinction because then you have to work with so many unwanted behaviors. Uh, like, yeah, we can set aside the ethical argument and just focus on, you know, effectiveness. And for me, it goes back to the fact that you're practicing incorrect stuff and you just, you know, the, the ratio of, I, I want to spend my training session practicing things that are the ones that getting really fluent and clean at the things that I want to train. So for me, the faster way to teach a behavior is always clean progression so that within a couple of training sessions, I get less and less variability in the topography of the behavior because uh, the more stable, the, the more fluent behavior is, the more stable it is. And then I can add more layers to that behavior. So I like errors, frustration, and extinction burst is absolutely not necessary for the learning to occur. So if it's not necessary, I can do my best to, and, and then if an error occurs, unwanted response, I can consider it a feedback and I can actually make it another criteria for the next training session because this will give me maybe another component another component that was missing from my training session and another skill that my animal needs to master before going forward. And using the building blog analogy and that approach to shaping for me makes training so much faster because if I have all those components, then, you know, I can take those legal blocks and create so many different things with already skill set that my animal has. And if you focus on those foundations and you have, you can just pick and choose those foundations and put them together while your dog is already getting, uh, has those stability in those foundations, then just, he is so quick to progress and really follow your structure of the training session. And while you use the antecedent arrangement, it, it, it's so quick, really. Like I was teaching recently one of my dogs a new behavior uh, and it was just jumping through my hands. Like I wanted my to, one of my dogs to, to teach her to jump through my hands. And it took me one training session to, to 
it was it was less than like five minutes to actually teach her because we use targets and she's fluent at that. This was one of the components. And we were able to simply backchain it like in a couple of repetitions. And because she has a history of learning that way and there is no time wasted on Extinction Burst. There is no time wasted on that uh, moment where the dog does unwanted stuff. But we are just moving, okay, this works, so we go forward. And we are using a loop, so, you know, A, B, C, to make sure that we can progress. So while I see that the repetitions are fluent, like there is no unwanted behaviors in between any any loop, this is my cue to move forward. So that we, because it's also important people are afraid to, to move forward because they are afraid of errors. But sometimes you don't want to build a glass ceiling because once you get too long at a certain, when you stay too long at a certain criteria, then you can have a problem with moving forward because, you know, this is kind of like a finished behavior for the dog and, and they are get, it, it's harder for them to move forward. So for me, using a loop as a feedback and information that, okay, uh, I don't see any changes in the topography at this stage. So it means I can increase the criteria. And also that approach gives me really a f- great feedback from like this moment in a training session that tells me, okay, move forward or no, there's something missing, for example, uh, with um, the you know, the building block approach. When I was teaching one of my dogs to step on those pods, you know, the fitness pods with his rear paws, I had a problem because he was always kind of like tipping, like like making uh, f- fidgeting feet, right? Like he w- couldn't yeah, stand tappy, in one place. Tappy, yeah, 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 tap, yeah, yeah. And I, I was doing everything correctly. I mean, the progression was great, but then I realized that he actually can't do that standing on a stable platform. So... This was the missing part. And when we focused on that, it was just like, you know, one training session, going back to pots, problem solved. So it was not the, and the, the building blog approach gives you this kind of information that it's not always because like the, the old school was, if you're not progressing, I mean, if there is an error, it means you're going too fast and you have to just do more repetition at the same level, right? Or take a criteria down and go slower. But with building block, it's more like, okay, so what is missing? It's not like, it not it doesn't really mean that you have to go slower. It may mean that- No, it doesn't actually, at all. It's- Completely. You actually won't get stuck the way that you could in the other mm-hmm. kind of way of doing things because when something goes wrong, it is information to you to find the component part that's missing and yeah. plug and go teach that and then plug that part back in. Exactly. It's not about, because yeah, like, like we used to do it. It's like, yes, just slow down. Usually it was the response. If you're uh, having a problem, you just have to slow down. So do less steps or do it. Yeah. Like stay in lower approximations longer is essentially exactly, which is its own trap that yes, I I've gotten stuck in many times (laughs) for sure. Exactly. Yeah. And this is like, very often it was not enough because you stayed there and you kind of like, and at this stage it was, yeah, but it's all good when I do that. But then when I move forward, suddenly things just turn upside down. And it was not a problem of smaller approximation. It was a problem of something missing. And that component approach, the building block, the Legos, it just gives you this mindset that, okay, so what is that 
is missing that I need to teach my learner to do in order to be able to go forward. And I think this is super liberating and it also increases the time at which your, uh, sorry, decreases the time at which your animal learns because you're not wasting time on staying on one criteria too long because you don't know how to progress forward because it's not about just slowing down. I love it. And I, when I relate it back to, I've got an eight month old puppy right now and everything I'm teaching her is components. Everything I'm teaching her right now is just components that she will need for the sports stuff and the life stuff that we want to do later. And then when I do teach her kind of a quote unquote real agility skill, Mm -hmm. it goes so fast and she knows Mm -hmm. it basically immediately. And there's no struggle and there's no, there's no fight between us of like, and I know that if she's not getting it right, right away, that there's a component missing. And typically for me in these super early stages, it is a reinforcement skill component. It is how to head out, locate the reinforcer, return kind of back to home position. So if she eats the piece of food out of the grass and then sniffs for a second, then when her head comes up, she isn't going to be in the right spot. Versus if she eats it and immediately turns back to me, now she's in the right spot where I want her so that we can complete that loop and restart, do another repetition. And if I look at eating food out of the grass and returning right back to home position as a component skill that is not working for me in that moment, then I know that that's actually what needs to get fixed rather than nagging at her, prompting her to get back to work or, you know, telling her she's bad for sniffing or any of that garbage, then (laughs) instead I just go, oh, well, you know, is it the type of food? Is it that, you know, like what's going on here that she's not doing that reinforcement skill correctly? And so I think I would love everybody to think of it this way, to kind of go, if something is going wrong, what are the component skills that are missing? And like when you were mentioning with the paw pods, the tappy feet on the paw pods, yes, I love, like I teach my dogs to stand on in unstable equipment as well for core strength and all kinds of different reasons. And they have to be able to do that on stable equipment first. First, they have to be able to stand still on the ground, then stand still on stable platforms. Now we can maybe talk about, you know, instability equipment. And it's, I don't think that folks do think that way as a default and kind of pushing all of us to make that more of our default, make training so much easier for everyone. Absolutely. And I think what's also like the, the one of the uh, things that comes to my mind when I think about the building blocks is also how, how do you get the resilience, right? So it's not by doing something incorrectly. It's actually by having multiple skills that when things don't go as planned, you have a set of different behaviors, different skills that you learn to use under various different conditions. So, for example, you're doing the heel work and you, as a handler, you fall down. And the dog, this is like a new situation for the dog. Usually, I mean, we don't often fall down and heel work. Uh, but then wh- why some dogs just immediately go back and continue? Because they were taught to do heel work under very different conditions. And under, they have a skill set that tells them that, okay, maybe this was not exactly the situation that happened previously, but it was similar. The cues were similar to this, this and that, that happened in the past and that was reinforced that was 
fluent. So they are able to really like use the toolbox they have in a different new situations that resemble the training scenarios. So this is how you build resilience. So when something in something that when there is an error, when you don't get exactly everything correctly, then you have a skill set with a strong reinforcement history that tells you, okay, if I do that, this will get me the reinforcement. Rather than if I do that, they're going to withhold the reinforcement for much longer and I will just offer plenty of different behaviors. Maybe something will work out. So for me, it's this is how we get creative, actually, not by out of the blue. The creativity is the ability to use fluently the skill set that you have, using it very in an untypical, in a way that's not very typical. I well, I have a lot of thoughts, but I I would like to relate this resiliency piece to my primary work is actual is working through behavior challenges rather than like I train sports for fun for myself. Mm-hmm. And in behavior challenges, this is also true. When your dogs have component skills like conditioned relaxation cues, like when you are here in this scenario, the only thing you've ever experienced is relaxing. And so then I can kind of fade challenges into that scenario or attention to handler when something goes wrong or whenever you see something novel, like, yeah, here are the reinforcing options for you. Because if we don't build those options for them, then what happens is they bark and lunge and scream at something and they feel relief from that thing. And now that thing is reinforced. Like if we leave them up to their own ideas about how to solve their own problems out in the world, when things are scary or alarming or whatever, like it doesn't go so well for us, but the more skills they have that we've taught them, the easier it is for them to roll with the punches. Like it is, that's so true in real life. It's not just in training, not just in these kind of contrived shaping scenarios that we're talking about. It is everywhere all the time. Like when I look at one of my, you know, adult dogs that's been through a lot with me that that has tons and tons of skills and tons of reinforcement history with me, anything can happen. And they're like, yeah, okay. I, I know the path to reinforcement. I know that I always have these options to get to reinforcement. And that's the same. It's not just in these contrived scenarios. It's also in life. Absolutely. It's like one of my dogs had, I mean, she's 13 this year. Oh my God. And she used to have, now it's so much better, but still problems with aggressive behaviors and understanding, first of all, for me, understanding that, you know, aggressive aggression is its behavior too was really a game changer, but also that the more skills she will have, the easier the, how to get out of the situation, how to handle uh, the situation, the more that the easier it will become. Because let's say the only way for you to get out of an unwanted, like really unpleasant conversation is to punch somebody, right? <laughs> let's say so. If you don't have any other skills, any other behaviors in your repertoire, what are you going to do? You're going to punch someone, right? But then if you have, if you can shout at somebody and then you punch, it's better, right? I mean, shouting is better than punching. But then if you learn to say, I don't want to talk to you and then shout and then punch, that's even better. But what if you can gently end the conversation or if you can really get more different behaviors that get you out of the conversation before you punch someone, this is really changing the game. And this is like with dogs with aggressive behaviors. Before they bite, 
there are many different behaviors they can show that will get them out of a difficult situation. So the more skills we are going to teach them, then the less problematic the behaviors, the, 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 the problematic behaviors are less likely to come up on the surface because there is no need for them. This is super important. Like this is about all those very foundational skills usually. And we very often underestimate the power of treat delivery, of eating as a behavior, of uh, really reading our dog and responding to the needs of our dog and communicating with that dog. and But we really put too much emphasis on that uh, extinction process of that extinction burst and of the fact that, yes, the dog has to be resilient, so he needs to like make multiple errors. We think that maybe they will, when there is some sort of a discomfort, they will kind of like remember it better or that this is... This is the real life, right? This is like, this is how the dog should learn because this is more of a real life scenario, but not really. Like, we, we don't need that. Yeah. And so, really, what we're saying here is that teaching these building blocks for behavior applies everywhere across the board. It applies if you're trying to teach the dog to wrap a cone, but it also applies if you are working through aggression and it applies. It applies every place that we are trying to affect behavior in in our dogs, in our animals, in anything. And so clearly this applies in very simple tasks, but also complex tasks. And the ability to apply it to these complex tasks kind of relies on your ability to be aware of what building blocks are necessary and to see unwanted responses or errors as broken or missing building blocks. Mm-hmm. That's what it relies on. And I think that people kind of argue, well, you know, if we're going to train for, you know, third-party standards, like if we're going to train for service work or high levels of competition where there are no reinforcers, that this doesn't apply. And actually it applies even more so. Like the more complex it gets, the more important this is. Do you think that that's true? Yeah, absolutely. Because And it's the funny thing is, these are, I, I love, it's so still valid what Ken Ramirez said, that advanced training are just basics done really, really well. And exactly. when we consider the basics to be like delivery systems, patterns, all those things that we don't usually teach. We focus on teaching behaviors, like complex behaviors before we start. Like what we should start with is teaching the animal how to learn in the first place. Like what are those components, those behaviors that will enhance learning in the future? So those prerequisite skills, those things that are really necessary for every single training session that you're going to have. And then complex training competition is really mastering those skills and then just adding more complex of course exercises but these are i would say the exercises in competition even it's obedience agility are not as important as those foundations because they are the glue that keeps all the the everything together so if you don't have if the glue is weak everything's going to fall apart because you know teaching 
the dog to jump over a single hurdle. It's not as difficult as all those connections in between. And those are usually based on very foundational behaviors, very foundational building blocks that you've mastered, that are really trained to fluency, that are being able, that you can use across different scenarios and the dog can generalize very easily. I think that is the perfect place to wrap up. I This has been, I love how we brought this conversation full circle and talked about those behavior concerns as well as the contrived scenarios. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts that you would like to add? I like to think about whatever I teach and, and the approach to training more like think about creating rather than fixing. So focus on building something rather than repairing or fixing the unwanted stuff that you already have. So we don't fix behavior, we teach behaviors. So if you already have unwanted stuff in the repertoire, don't think about getting rid of it. Think about how can you teach it from the start without that context and with a new approach that may involve those building blocks. I love it. It's really smart. Where can folks find you if they want to know more? I think that there are a few a few different places that they might be interested in. So they can definitely find me on Tromplo, which is my online training platform. Uh, but not only me, there are plenty of other cool instructors there. Uh, they can find me on Instagram and Facebook and on my podcast that I'm doing very, very rarely, but still <laughs> it's there. Yeah, I think these are the places. Perfect. We, I will definitely link all of those for everyone. But Tromplo is, yeah, a great place for some online learning if you guys want to understand more about what we just talked about. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe wherever you heard this podcast. And don't forget to join Patreon at patreon.com slash cogdogradio. And if you're interested in more content like the stuff you heard here, I hope you'll check out my online courses, my membership, and all of my offerings at my website, sarahstremming.com. See you there.